Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, this, of course, is a, a day that um, it's hard to escape thinking about events just two years ago, January 6th, 2021, when the United States Capitol was under attack by pro-Trump supporters, egged on and by the president, and more than egged on, because the January 6th committee believes that he was engaged in a criminal action in encouraging the attack on the Capitol to prevent the um, final uh, step in the official uh, naming of Joe Biden president of the United States, the certification of the electoral uh, votes. And so we're going to spend a good deal of time on the show today talking about that day with a wonderful panel of people. Um, let me introduce the panel right away, and um, and then we'll get started on uh, looking back on that and on, on January 6th. And we're also a little later in the show going to look at the um, history of efforts in the past to elect speakers of the House as um, we watch Kevin McCarthy uh, now on his fourth day after 11 defeats continuing to try to get enough votes to be Speaker of the House. We'll look at other uh, efforts in history to do the same thing. So we are joined today, as I am on Fridays, by Jim Galloway, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, thank you so much for being here today. No, uh, happy to be here and happy new year. You too. Tia Mitchell, you were in the United States Capitol as the AJC's uh, white, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Washington reporter, uh, and you were caught as the riots unfolded, as people rushed into the chambers. And um, so I'm very glad you could be with us today. Thank you, Tia. Yes, thank you for um, inviting me, and I look forward to reflecting on what happened two years ago. Matthew Brown is with us. He's the democracy reporter for The Washington Post. Um, uh, Matt, uh, there are many, many people who think that democracy was at stake, at risk, uh, on January 6, 2021. And there are people who still believe our democracy is in, in a shaky place right now. Yeah, Bill. Great to, great to be here. Happy Friday. Um, yes, it has been a, it's going to definitely be a good conversation to investigate this current state of our democracy. Thanks for being here. We're also joined uh, uh, for the first time in a while, and we're really glad to have him back, Joe Crispino, professor of American history and chairman of the history department at Emory University. Uh, Joe, I'm really looking forward to your take on how history is going to remember January 6th. Um, and the answer to that question could be a little bit more complex than uh, we might think it will be. So, Joe, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Bill, for having me. Wonderful to be with you. So let me start very briefly. We were on the air on January 6th, 2021, live at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. As most of you know, usually our 2 o'clock show is a repeat of the morning show. But that was the day after the runoff elections for U.S. Senate, and we wanted to make sure we had an up-to-the-minute uh, report on whether or not um, the election was going to go to John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, which of course it did. And so we began talking about the outcome of the election. Tamar Hallerman was on with us that afternoon. And of course, Tamar was um, Tia's predecessor as the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So she, she and I, and I spent an enormous amount of time covering Capitol Hill. I, I want to play a couple of brief sound bites uh, to uh, uh, remember with you what happened as we started getting word of what was going on at the U.S. Capitol. Um, here's the first report that we were able to put out over the air live that afternoon. We are now watching uh, in Washington mobs of people, protesters, pro-Trump protesters, who are 
attacking the barricades that have been set up at the U.S. Capitol. They are clashing with Capitol Police and I assume other uh, law enforcement from other branches uh, who are trying to fend them off. The Capitol, some uh, sections of the Capitol are being evacuated. So that was the start. From that point on, throughout the rest of that two to three hour, we focused on what was happening at the U.S. Capitol. And here's just another brief sample of what we watched and reported back to all of you was unfolding. All right, uh, Tamar, uh, let me uh, just give you some. uh, uh, There's another development. There is a further escalation. Um, uh, Our good friend and your colleague, Tia Mitchell, your Washington correspondent, is at the Capitol. She just tweeted that members of Congress are now putting on gas masks. So are members of the media. Tear gas has been dispensed in the rotunda, Tamar, in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. This is oh my God. heartbreaking and terrifying. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is terrifying. Um, you know, that's the... Uh, I'm sorry, I don't even have words right now. There's so much going through my head. I know that right now the chambers are, are kind of locked. You know, House and Senate members are locked in their respective chambers along with the media. But until all of this gets dispersed, they're not going to be able to continue with this counting of the uh, the certification of the Electoral College votes because eventually the Senate is going to have to cross through the rotunda into the House. So protesters are getting what they want. They're, they're pausing um, the certification of these results. And it's... Um, terrifying what is happening. Um, They did pause it for hours, but as you all know, Congress was determined, uh, the uh, House and Senate were determined to come back that night when the uh, Capitol had finally been cleared and finish the process which uh, was necessary to uh, install Joe Biden as president of the United States. So Tia, two years later, how has that day imprinted itself upon you? How, how has it affected you? Um, how do you look back on it all? Just tell us what you think about on this second anniversary since the riot. So um, thank you for having me on. And for me, there's a little bit of duality in my brain, maybe a little bit of disassociation because I'm able to approach it as a journalist in one way that's a little bit detached that talks about you know how republicans were so quick to condemn former president trump in real time but over the past 2 years many of them particularly the more conservative republicans have downplayed january 6 and spread uh, conspiracy theories about january 6 and even have held up the people charged with breaching the Capitol as some type of political martyrs and how that's problematic for our democracy. But when you ask me to dig deep and speak about personally how experiencing December 6th, January 6th, sorry, experiencing January 6th impacted me, um, there is still effects of that. For example, in the days leading up to today, this week, we've been at Capitol all day and loud noises gives me a little bit more pause than they may have. Um, there's been real, you know, there's something in the back of the, my mind that has said, with all this contentious debate around the speaker vote, Will that lead to some protesters showing up and what could that mean? And um, just kind of keeping my head on a swivel in ways that I didn't before January 6th. So, you know, it's it's manageable, but there are definitely, you know, I remember looking out the window um, one day this week, just as I was walking from the Senate side to the House side and I looked out the window and I remember thinking to myself on January 6th, I looked out that window and I thought that everything was good, but I just was looking out the window on the wrong side of the Capitol where the mob hadn't arrived yet. And how deceived I was when I looked out that window and tweeted out a picture and said, hey, things look orderly. And things like went all wrong within like 15 minutes of me posting that. And I looked out that same window and all those memories flash back. So yeah. we're still dealing with it both 
personally and again, professionally as a journalist who's kind of been monitoring how Congress has been affected over the last two years. Um, thank you for that. Jim Galloway, there is stepped up because security at the Capitol today, whether it has to do with the speaker's vote or not, um, there are those who are concerned that demonstrations could take place uh, on this second anniversary, Jim. Uh, yeah, but you haven't seen it. It's uh, how do I say this politely? But the 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 election or non-election of Kevin McCarthy isn't the same thing as a, as a the the shift of power, the the handing over of power uh, isn't quite as controversial here. Uh, and I don't think Kevin McCarthy is 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 a rallying point. But they look what happened uh, on in on January 6, twenty twenty one, and what's happening on in, in twenty twenty three. They do have some links. This is uh, what happened in in, in twenty twenty one was was basically an anti establishment riot, uh, an attack on the institutions. And what we have right now is in uh, in, in in the house, and I'm sure uh, uh, Matt and 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 Dr. Crispino can can uh, elaborate on it. Is is what we have is a we have an anti institutional uh, uh, action going now, uh, uh, created by you know what five percent five percent of the of the uh, of the house membership, less than five percent. Um, yeah, and I do want to talk about what's happening in terms of the uh, vote for speaker, um, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But um, and I think it's important, Jim, that you say there are some there are things about uh, what's happening there right now that harken back to uh, uh, the insurrection itself. I think that's absolutely correct. Um, but let's turn to this notion of how we are thinking about January six, two years later, and moving forward what we think history is going to say about January 6th. Um, Joe Crispino, um, Lydia Paul Green wrote a piece for the New York Times that was pegged to Rachel Maddow's a podcast called Ultra, which has become a very, very popular podcast about a movement before the Second World War of right-wing uh, anti-government insurrectionists, essentially, who were um, uh, white supremacists, who had plans to overthrow the United States government. And, and so she uses that as a point of departure to talk about how we are going to look at January 6th moving forward, because that event, those events that, that Rachel Maddow writes about, or, or has in her podcast are basically forgotten in history. And here's one of the things that Lydia Paul Green says, and I'll ask you and then Matt, I'd love you to get into the discussion. She says, history is not just what happened. It is the meaning we make out of what happened and the story we tell with that meeting. Will the day, January 6th, and its aftermath be a hinge point in our country's history or a forgotten episode to be plumbed by some podcaster decades from now? Uh, Joe, give us your take on all this. <clears throat> I think that the um, the comparisons with the ultra podcasts uh, that Rachel Maddow did are, are really interesting. Personally, my fear is less about January 6th being forgotten and more that it would be memorialized, you know, and, and turned on its head and that the camp because there still are ongoing campaigns on the right to, you know, to memorialize and to, to kind of reconfigure the memory of January 6th and to hold it up as some kind of patriotic event. We've seen that happen frequently in American history, that acts of insurrection and of political violence uh, become memorialized by the losers of history. Uh, that is That happened time and time again in the Reconstruction era, where, you know, one of the most famous incidents from 1872, in the Louisiana governor's election where a biracial group of Republicans win the, the gubernatorial election and white supremacist Democrats lead an insurrection. Policemen are murdered. Political opponents are arrested. Um, and, a, and an obelisk gets put up in the city of New Orleans 18 years later, an ob a memorial that stood in New Orleans until 2017. So I think here on the second anniversary of, of, of January 6th, that the the meaning of that event is still very much uh, 
being contested and being played out. And you see, I think there were significant uh, inroads made by the January 6th commission. I feel, uh, I, I can tell you, Bill, I feel more hopeful today than I did one year ago on the first anniversary that there is a, a record being established, a truthful record about what actually happened on, on, on January 6th. But it's still very much in play, and that memory is still be- is still being created. Uh, Matt, I, I would love for you to jump in on that uh, and, and respond to any number of things that Joe said, including the fact that um, we, history has often been bent uh, to the purposes of uh, people who have an agenda, um, but also the fact that the January 6th committee has produced a an extensive document which will give historians a path to look at what happened for literally centuries to come. Yes, and I think that it's important to notice, as having read now through literally hundreds of those pages, that it really is a very extensive fact-finding process that the committee really had put together over the past two years. I do also think, though, that it's important to note, as you said, how people have already through the committee, been trying to influence how it's interpreted, influence its history from literally the very start of it. I mean, remember, at the beginning, the proposal for the for January 6th committee would have been to have a 9-11 style commission that would have been bipartisan with not with non-members of Congress to oversee it. That's not what we got. Instead, we got a inherently, unfortunately, political investigation that investigated a lot of facts and unearthed a lot of truth about the situation. And and as you said, historians will be looking to it for a long time. But from the very beginning, we've seen that that fact-finding process has been contested by people in power, by influential political forces, influential financial forces, and a concerted movement still in this country that sees the election of 2020 as illegitimate. And I think that that's an important thing to note because, I mean, just as my colleague um, Annie Gowan reported today, there still is a movement that is seeking to reframe January 6th is somehow a patriotic effort. And that's something that, as as Joe pointed out, we've seen through efforts, for instance, like the lost cause a lot throughout American history. I I think that January 6th was one of the most graphic instances of not just government dysfunction, but a concerted anti-democratic impulse that we've seen in modern America. But it is not the only example. I mean, just as we said with the with the debates today over House Speaker, I think that it should be noted that that debate is currently happening on January 6th. And if January and if on January 6th last time there had not been a House Speaker, we would not have been able to certify the results of the presidential election. So it's very, very important to note that this that these questions over government function, government dysfunction, and, and whether or not there is a concerted, unified fact-finding process are still completely contesting our politics, as we can see very visibly on the two-year anniversary. Um, Thank you for that. Tia and then Jim, um, I want to uh, turn to an article that was written by two people who work at the uh, Smithsonian Institute Institute of American History. Um, And I'm going to read a a couple of uh, uh, lines from it and then have you both respond to it. They say, the year is 2086. At an unveiling ceremony in the United States Capitol Statuary Hall, visitors learn Listen to August speeches about a dark day long ago when patriots fought to defend democracy. The crowd breaks into applause as the cloth covering the new statue falls away. Marble megaphone aloft, headdress and horns gleaming, the QAnon shaman of January 6, 2021, takes his place among the heroes of American history. And Tia... The writers of this article go on to say, if this seems like a far-fetched scenario to you, don't forget the fact that Confederate, the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, was imprisoned after the Civil War um, and was even more reviled, they say, than any of the Capitol uh, rioters. And yet his statue joined George Washington's in the Capitol 65 years later to you. And not only that, there are school children throughout the South that attend schools to this day, or at least till very the recent movements against it, named after Jefferson Davis. Um, a lot of black and brown children have attended schools uh, named after Jefferson Davis. You know, as so, you know, I at times, and I've talked. I think I've talked about on this podcast how fragile our democracy is and how 
it only takes a few people intent on shifting the narrative to make it happen. That's again, the parallels with this speaker race. There are 200 Republicans that support McCarthy. There are 20 who do not, but the 20 have been able to completely derail um, the 200. And so what it shows us is that if you allow it, the vocal minority with an agenda can be allowed to overpower the narrative, but that's only if you allow it. That's the, that's, Quite frankly, the question before Kevin McCarthy, that's been the question um, before us throughout history when it came to how we remember the Civil War and how we remember um, slavery and Reconstruction and more recently how we remember January 6th. It's, you know, who do we allow to shape history and what is their agenda? Jim, jump in. Yeah, it's it's this this uh, we're not we're not when we're talking about shaping history, we're not talking about something that's that's uh, that's far off. It's not in 2086. It's right now. Uh, I think one of the more fascinating things uh, about the January 6th committee and, and, and Matt or and Tia, you can correct me if I've got this wrong, but they handed all of their research over and put it into the National Archives out of the reach of the new House Republican majority, so that that's that so 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 they the uh, the House Republicans will have no control over that that information. Uh, uh, it it'll be under the control of Joe Biden. Have I got that right? Yes, but Republicans are trying to recall it, right, Matt? Yeah, no, it's it's. It, it's still within the government, and Congress is the first among equals among the branches of government. Meaning that there can still be nothing is out of the is out of the reach of Congress when when it comes to the federal government. But I wouldn't say that that is something that would necessarily succeed. Joe, um, so let's go to the question that uh, Lydia Paul Green asks in her article. Um, will January sixth and its aftermath be a hinge point? in our country's history, or a forgotten episode to be plumbed by some podcaster like a Rachel Maddow decades from now. And I think the important part of that question, for me at least, is did January 6th change this country in a significant way or not? Well, you know, Jim, I'm a historian, so I can't tell you, you know, you got to ask me in 100 years and I'll tell you how it's going to be remembered. But <laughs> the... Um, but I do think I, as I said earlier, I am optimistic about the fact that a record is being established that will be very hard to argue against. You know, we we should remember that, um, you know, before the January sixth hearings uh, started, there was a lot of skepticism from pundits and commentators about that commission. Uh, Matt's right. You know, you know, it wasn't it wasn't an, an independent commission. It was is clearly seen as a political body. I remember, you know, David Brooks writing in the New York Times about how it was going to be a waste of time. It was going to just, you know, it was just going to fuel the kind of person persecution complex of Donald Trump. And that's not that didn't happen. He was wrong about that. And to his credit, he he, he admitted it later. But 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 those hearings became must see TV. Those hearings uh, had an impact that we haven't seen by from congressional hearings since maybe the Watergate hearings. Uh, it's played out in the television ratings. It's played out in public opinion polls. But most importantly, it played out in the performance of election-denying Republican candidates in the midterms in swing states who did not win those elections. And so um, all of that to me, shows an impact that the, the hearings have had on public opinion. Has it changed, you know, the hardcore the Republican Party? Of course not. And that and that group is still going to be denying elections. And that's not going to change until Donald Trump changes, until we get some kind of final um, electoral judgment on Donald Trump. All of this is still in play. All of it can still change. But I still feel that history, I'm more optimistic about history remembering this properly, January 6th, as one of the darkest days in American democracy. I'm more optimistic about that judgment of history prevailing today than I was a year ago. Um, 
Joe, I, I asked you um, when I invited you to do the show uh, if you would uh, give some thought to what you, when you look back at American history, events that you think are somewhat similar, in some, to some extent parallel what happened on January 6, 2021, and ways in which it is a completely unique uh, happening in our history. And I'd love to uh, get your take on that and bring the rest of the panel in on that after we pause for our first break. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Joe Crispino, uh, Matt Brown of the Washington Post, Ian Mitchell, the Washington reporter for the AJC, and Jim Galloway join us for today's show. Uh, Joe, am I correct that prior to June, January 6, 2021, the last time that there was an attack on the U.S. Capitol was during was in 1814 during the uh, British War of 18, the War of 1812, and in 1814 the Capitol was basically burned down. Uh, by uh, British soldiers attacking it, yes? That's right. That's right, Bill. And so it's 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 really unprecedented, uh, in, certainly in modern times, to have... And, of course, that was a war <laughs> with Great Britain that was taking place at the time. So to have this kind of internal, you know, discord that leads to this kind of attack, it's, 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 it's wholly unprecedented in our in our country's history i mentioned earlier you know that the, there are precedents you know that follow from the civil war where there are political battles uh insurrections that take place against republican governments in the reconstruction era south but you know what's fundamentally different here is this as you know as you say it's on the nation's capital it's attack on the nation's capital and it's an attack that's that's being egged on, coordinated, led by the sitting president of the United States. Um, so we really are in uncharted waters historically when we think about what happened on January sixth. Um, there are parallels, certainly. There there are examples we can draw from, but I think it's I think to me it's it's more different than it is alike when you think about anything um, in American. Uh, history and and um, and so you know and, and to and just to continue my theme of 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 a kind of cautious optimism, um, I also think you know if you think about those 19th century examples I mentioned, there's also a categorical difference in the in the amount and the nature of the historical evidence that's documenting January 6th in comparison to the to the insurrectionary insurrectionary acts of the 19th century. Um, so it, it's it's something that, it, that for historians it's hard to think of parallels to 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 com, to compare to what happened that day. Jim, um, you sent to us an article in Matt's paper in the Washington Post, uh, pointing out that when people go on tours now, public tours uh, of the U.S. Capitol right now, uh, they see a lot, they learn a lot about the history of the Capitol, but there is no mention by tour guides of the insurrection on January 6th. Jim? Right, right. Uh, uh, the, the, the word is that uh, this kind of falls into the, it, it, the, January 6th falls into the category of current legislation, if you will, that they will only talk about it if, 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 if asked about it, if asked very specifically about it. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me, Again, it's not it's not settled history, uh, but I, I do want to just add something to to, to to what Joe was saying uh, uh, about the the historical record. Basically, the one thing that 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 January sixth, twenty twenty one, offers it, it, where the the committee has has developed is you you do have some heroes. Uh, history lives through heroes. And we have heroes. We 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 developed a a a a a, a set of heroes during during that January sixth uh, the, the 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 commission activity, 
Uh, you have you have the the aide to 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 Mark Meadows who just broke open the whole case, a 25 year old w- woman. You have you have the police officers. Uh, you have you had uh, two election workers in Georgia in 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 the State Farm arena arena who are who are being presented uh, medals today by Joe 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 Biden. You have a set of heroes through which this history can be told now, and I think that's incredibly important for the future. Um, Matt Brown and then Tia pick up on that. I think that's interesting. And Matt, let let us point out what uh, uh, Jim just said, uh, President. Biden today is going to uh, be speaking uh, at the White House um, about the insurrection and going to do exactly what Jim's talking about. He's going to celebrate some of the people who are considered heroes coming out of what happened. Shea Moss, her mother, Ruby Freeman, who captured the nation's attention during the January 6th committee hearings when they talked about how, after being falsely accused of uh, it, it feeding fake ballots into the Fulton County uh, voting machinery, Uh, they were demonized, their lives were threatened. Um, They today, uh, Donald Trump personally attacked them by name and continues to. Um, They today will be at the White House and be presented Presidential Citizen Medals. So will Caroline Edwards, the first Capitol Hill police officer to uh, be injured, attacked during the rioting. She's a native of Georgia, and uh, there are nine others, uh, other police, Capitol Police, who and others who will be honored. So, Matt, I think Jim makes a good point that history is also told through the story of heroes. Right, one hundred percent. And I think that, as as he said, this is unsettled history because the country is unsettled right now. We're unsettled, and and we don't necessarily agree as a nation over what the narrative is around January sixth. You've got people trying to memorialize it as a, as the low point of our of our democratic process. You've got people trying to say that these people were you know great patriots, not domestic terrorists. You've got people who just want to memory hold the whole thing or do whataboutism. I, I think that what the events today show um, in Biden awarding Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman these medals shows that. There's a potential narrative here that you can understand in which January 6th was literally the most powerful man in the world not wanting to can not wanting to concede to an election that he lost and the only reason that he wasn't able to do that is because of thousands if not millions of regular people all across this country especially here in Georgia which Donald Trump had particular interest in making a concerted effort to do the right thing in a lot of mundane seeming instances that could have truly upended the country. And when you look at it like that, January 6th was the culmination of a movement that had failed in every other instance up to that point since um, Donald Trump's election law. So I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can look at this event um, throughout history. And I think it's going to be really important to note that there are you know, heroes all across the country who are trying to make sure that our democratic process is still functioning today and that something like January 6th, either from the concerted effort to overturn the election before it or the very violent effort to overturn the election when it became clear that there was no other avenue, the people are making sure that none of those things can happen again in the future and that the safeguards of our democracy are going to hold. Tia, you were in the uh, room, in the hearing rooms, uh, covering a lot of what unfolded at the January 6th committee. So I'd love to get your take on uh, the people who emerge, as Jim called them, the heroes of all this. Yeah, and I do um, think that's notable. I think it's also notable that, like Jim said, these were not generally inner circle people. These are people who had a lot to lose. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson being a young woman, um, you know, Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman have essentially, you know, not been able to return to jobs they both say they loved. Um, And I also want to just point out that those heroes generally were women. Um, Save, you know, the police officers were... um, there were there were men and women, but Carolyn Edwards is from Georgia, and she was the first police officer who was injured on the front lines on January 6th, a woman. Um, when it came time to save democracy, it, the women are the ones who were leaned on to get it done. Um, but to broaden it up to President Biden, um, a man, uh, you know, I think what he's making sure he does today, what Matt brought up is saying it's not just about one day of violence. It's about reminding people that there were weeks of threats and lies and misinformation 
and rogue schemes that led to the violence. And so you can't talk about January 6th without talking about November 2020, without talking about Stop the Steal and the big lie. And um, I think that's important because, again, particularly with the far-right Republicans, they've tried to, you know, they don't like talking about the big lie. They don't like talking about the Stop the Steal and their role in it that we know that many uh, Republican elected officials, particularly in Congress, played. Um, and then they want to just talk about January 6th and say, of course, that was terrible. Of course, we don't condone violence. But you, it all goes together. And if we want to make sure another January 6th doesn't happen, we got to make sure that our election integrity and faith in elections and faith in democracy is preserved. And we expect that that is going to be a big part of President Biden's message today. Um, before we have to take a break and then turn our attention to uh, the speaker's race and, and past experiences in American history around efforts to elect speakers, um, uh, Joe, I want to pick up on your optimism. Um, and, and then, Matt, I also, given that you are democ one of the democracy reporters at The Washington Post, also get your take on this. Joe, um, there are people who will say today that um, Joe Biden was uh, formally uh, 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 became president of the United States. The process did unfold later in the evening of the day of the insurrection. The midterm elections uh, showed us that democracy is holding uh, because many of the people who believed the big lie, promoted the big lie, um, were uh, 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 not uh, elected. So it, it, to some extent, I guess the question becomes, is our democracy stronger than the events we've watched unfold ever since uh, uh, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump as president of the United States? I hope so, Bill. Uh, but I, I do qualify my optimism with caution. It's a cautious optimism. I mean, I think one of the one of the indelible phrases that will persist in history that occurred this year is legitimate political discourse. That was mm. the description of January 6th that was given in an official statement by the Republican National Committee. There's still 200, some 200 Republicans in Congress today who deny, who, who are election deniers, who say that, the, 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 that, uh, Joe, that Joe Biden was not legitimately elected. So we're not out of the woods yet. <laughs> by any stretch. And there's a lot that still needs to play out. And the Republican, I mean, and, and look, I mean, let's, let's tell you what it is. It's the Republican Party that, you know, has the responsibility of dealing with this. It's it's the Republican Party that is in a mess. And even when they solve this speaker problem, it's not like whoever is going to be speakers will be able to run the Republican Party. Uh, you yeah. know, it's an ungovernable party right now. Uh, so we've got a long way to go yet, Bill, but, but, you know, but, so we'll, we'll see. Matt, have our democratic institutions held? Yeah, I would definitely say that they've, for the most part, held. If they hadn't held, then we wouldn't be talking about the democratic process still enduring. I, I think that that American democracy has shown that it's very resilient. At the same time, we are very clearly under a lot of stress in this country when it comes to the democratic system and process. And, and as Joe noted, not only are there that there are still several hundred um, members of Congress who contested Joe Biden's election. I think that that's notable because a lot of those people did win re-election. It's very notable that over that across the country in contested battleground states and contested races, we did see election deniers lose those seats and, and not gain the levers of power over, for instance, Secretary of State races. Um, even here even here, just in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, um, who very famously resisted overtures to overturn the election. Um, um, sailed to re-election, basically. So, so, so we have seen those in very notable and important instances. At the same time, though, it is very clear that there is a subset of this country that is very okay with what happened on January 6th, and that there are portions of America that wouldn't necessarily have an issue with some of the more conspiratorial um, or extreme views that were espoused on that day. And I'm not just talking about the specific election denialism or the personality of Donald Trump. He has both created and accelerated a movement that is in many ways fundamentally anti-democratic in this um, country that is now 
a part of and manifesting in some ways inside of the Republican Party. And I think that that is something that we are going to be grappling with for a very long time um, as a nation to really understand how can we, you know, lower the temperature on politics in some ways? How can we increase unity, lower polarization, and, and make sure that some of the forces that are really driving this um, political division and extremism in the country to, to make this subset buy into some of these far-right ideas is, is not um, given the oxygen that it needs to continue to threaten democracy. Uh, Jim, I got to get to a break, but I do think I, I should thank Matt for giving me a reality check on what I said about uh, so many election deniers not uh, winning election. Right here in Georgia, uh, it was Georgia voters reelected most of the Republican, all of the Republicans, uh, who had been in an office uh, and were able to uh, vote against certifying the vote, they all were reelected to uh, the House. So it's a mixed bag, Jim. Yeah, it, it's uh, – they, but we're entering right now with – and this, the speaker's race, which we'll get to uh, real quickly, is, 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 is proving to be something of a, of a splitter among those people because you've got Marjorie Taylor Greene supporting uh, Kevin McCarthy. She was a big election denier. Andrew Clyde, uh, Tia, uh, Tia Mitchell has a, has, a, has a nice little get on, 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 on uh, Congressman Clyde that I, I suppose we can talk about after the break. That's exactly what we'll do, Jim Galloway. Thank you, as usual, for helping me get to the final break of the show. We'll do that and come back and talk about the speaker's race. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. The U.S. House comes into session again later this morning, and uh, they will once again try to uh, elect a speaker of the House, I think, I'm correct in saying, uh, Joe Crispino, that last night um, on the 11th vote, which Kevin McCarthy lost, they passed a record set in 1923 for the most votes in the in in, in you know recent American history for a, a speaker. I think there were 10 votes to elect the speaker in 1923. Yes, that's right. So we've moved past the historical analogy of 100 years ago, and now we're back in the midst of the 1850s on the eve of the Civil War, <laughs> where they, were, they, they deliberated for three months. Um, hopefully, we'll resolve this, you know, before March or early April. But, <laughs> but you know, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, the vote in, in the 18, 1856... Uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong. I went. It was like a, over a hundred votes before the speaker was picked, and part of the problem there was that the parties weren't um, as established. There were not two strong parties that each had a candidate for speaker and then could vote. People were aligning and realigning in much vaguer ways than today, Joe. Yeah, that's there's some mild optimism in looking at the 1850s analogy because the, the party systems were so chaotic then, largely divided along northern and southern lines. But even within those regional divisions, there were lots of different factions um, within the parties. And so, you know, whereas by comparison today, you've got about 20 Republicans who are at yeah. the heart of of the problems we face. So it's a much cleaner, clearer um, you know, lineup, a uh, cast of characters that we're dealing with today. But that doesn't necessarily mean it will be any easier to resolve, though. Tia Mitchell, I'm not sure that we ever thought we'd see a time in which Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde were basically fighting against one another over who the next speaker of the U.S. House should be. Marjorie Taylor Greene, of course, has aligned herself with Kevin McCarthy, I think, very shrewdly. Andrew Clyde is one of those 20 Republicans who refuses to cast a ballot for uh, McCarthy. Tell us, Galloway talked about uh, you're getting a nice little hit on Clyde. Talk to us about that. Yeah, and I think if we were going to guess and say, okay, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde are on opposite ends, you would assume that Marjorie Taylor Greene would have the more far right position of the two. Yeah. And that's the opposite. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is has quite frankly gone mainstream a little bit. You know, she's part of the Republican majority um, and not part of the 20 far right members who are blocking Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker. I do think it's shrewd. You know, the people who have been critical of Marjorie Taylor Greene for good reason. She's had a lot of problematic things she said. She spread misinformation. She said xenophobic, racist, 
homophobic things. So, you know, the there are legitimate grievances against her. And I think that's making her critics um, a little bit blind to the fact that she's showing some political maturity in taking this position. And it has helped legitimize her. It will help her have a platform as um, as someone to be taken more seriously than she has in her first term. And that's just the reality of it. Now, when it comes to Andrew Clyde, I worked with the great Greg Bluestein, of course, on this scoop that we had that, <laughs> you know, privately, it looks like Andrew Clyde has, you know, enjoyed a relationship with Kevin McCarthy and that Kevin McCarthy hosted a private fundraiser for Andrew Clyde in Buckhead of all places, not in his district, in Ritzy Buckhead just a few months ago. <laughs> And, you know, we went and we showed that like private and even Marjorie Taylor Greene said, I was at a fundraiser with Clyde and McCarthy and Andrew Clyde was saying, yeah, that's our future speaker right there. And, you know, she said it, it's not a good look for um, Andrew Clyde to kind of privately seem like he's cool with McCarthy and then publicly not align with him. Um, and so that's something that has been coming up. And uh, Kevin McCarthy raised millions of dollars for House candidates. Collectively, I'm told he raised roughly $500 million between the various political groups. And Andrew Clyde got a piece of that. Most of the 20 Republicans who currently oppose Kevin McCarthy have received direct political donations from his political committee. They accepted his help. And now that they are, you know, again, opposing him. So that's something they all face. Uh, we should point out uh, that on the other side of this, uh, uh, Mike Collins, the new uh, uh, Georgia um, uh, Republican in the House, uh, uh, ran on a promise that he would not vote for Kevin McCarthy for Speaker of the House, and yet he has been casting his votes for uh, Kevin McCarthy. We'll see how voters up there, look at that as this uh, moves forward. Matt, you wrote a great piece that I want to give you a couple minutes to fill us in on, in which you point out that essentially the United States Constitution is completely silent about how a speaker should be elected, even though it does, in fact, uh, elevate the position of speaker to one of some importance. Talk to us about that. Right, absolutely. So the speaker being chosen is actually the first order of business in every House of Representatives. There, there doesn't really exist a House of Representatives until the speaker is selected. But the Constitution only says that the House that the House members will will choose their speaker. That's a very important thing because there are no basic parameters beyond that, which in constitutional law and constitutional history opens up you know a whole can of worms to well, what did the framers intend? What can we do now? How how is this traditionally done? And what turns out in my in my piece that I explored was that historians and and legal experts have basically said that there are a num number of norms and you can look at the historical context of things to basically say, well, did the founders really intend for it to be just that you could elect anybody or did they just expect that you would elect a member of the House, for instance, to be House Speaker? But but all those questions are basically open for grabs in, in this situation here, which it's important to always have that context. Um, we, we, we love people like Professor Crispino who can show us the history history of how these things actually went down at the time, but it's also it also shows that these processes are very vulnerable to abuse because without them being specifically enumerated, you can get situations where there's no constitutional recourse for if you can't reach a speaker. We're, we're, we're really dealing with the clerk of the house here having to decide whether or not she is going to at some point, for instance, say, okay, well, maybe we'll just go to a plurality vote, or maybe we'll make it so that only the top two vote getters are going to count, or, the, or those are situations that there's no actual guidance inside of the Constitution to really resolve these questions. So so we could be here until April or until the next election, because that's the only thing that is enumerated in the, in the Constitution until then. So so that is something that I think really showed. And it's important that when we get into these long conversations about what the founders intended is, is it was clear that the founders on some level did expect that people who would be elected to the House of Representatives would want to govern and that they would be people who would be able to hash out these debates and questions amongst themselves on how do we elect the speaker? 
or how do we come up with things? And, and that they wanted to give the future residents and citizens of this country the opportunity to have the creativity to come up with their own ways of doing that. And the fact that we're in this gridlock and this deadlock that is both one of the most precarious, but also a bit more absurd than when we were um, in the 1850s, when there were very clear questions over slavery that were actually about to set the country into civil war. Right now, we just have 20 members who who don't want to actually elect Kevin McCarthy, and it's a very personal, we just hate this dude situation. That divide, I think, is showing that there are still constitutional questions that need to be answered about the situation. Well, and of course, one of the things that points out is, as you said before we went on the air uh, to all of us, Matt, uh, the founding fathers expected we might have mature leaders who could arrive at decisions in a meaningful, uh, thoughtful way, which reminds me of the headline, uh, the, the front page, uh, large uh, uh, font headline of the Washington, New York Post the day after McCarthy lost his first three uh, ballots uh, that basically said to Congress, grow up, which I think is fascinating. Uh, Jim, we're almost out of time, but one of the things that's interesting about uh, what Matt's talking about here is, since we don't know who the next speaker will be, so there isn't a speaker, um, the line of succession for the presidency is now in an interesting place because it's, of course, Kamala Harris, second, but now it's Patty Murray, the senator from the state of Washington, uh, who becomes the uh, second in succession. <laughs> so uh, that's a position I imagine she never expected to find herself in. <laughs> uh, right, right. And, and, and let it be known, she's the first female Senate president pro tem. That's right. Exactly. All right. We are completely out of time uh, for today's show, but I, I'm really grateful to all of you for having what for me was a really terrific conversation. Professor Joe Crispino of Emory uh, Matthew Brown of the Washington Post, Tia Mitchell, of course, we always love having you on the show, and Jim Galloway, my Friday partner, thank you all for being here. I hope you all out there have a really good weekend. We're back with a brand new show on Monday when the legislative session begins. We'll begin talking about that on Monday's show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Leggett. Take care, stay healthy, and as a guy who's just recovering from COVID, please go out and get every shot you can. You don't want to get covid at least it'll be mild like it was in my case if you're all shot up. Take care, everybody. <laughs>